Hello, my name is Patrick Thaddeus Jackson, and I am a professor at American University in Washington, D.C., and this is the first of three lectures on philosophy of science and its relevance to research design, particularly research design in the social sciences. Today's lecture will talk a bit about the history of the category science and the origins of the very idea of philosophical reflection on science as a whole, get a little bit into the social and political implications of that, and then set up what the second and third lectures will do, which will be to jump into some specific schools of thought within this broad endeavor of reflecting on science. But the place I want to begin is not even with the category science. I want to begin with just a broad set of thoughts about knowing, about what it means to know things. Because the category science, the notion of science, intervenes in that field of different ways of knowing and demarcates it, singling out some forms of knowing as appropriate and acceptable and valid and others as not. So we could think about this in terms of different categories of claims that people make, different kinds of claims about knowing things. So we have knowledge claims that are descriptive, we have knowledge claims that are explanatory, not just telling you what something looks like, but what you can do with it or how to make it do various things, for instance. We have aesthetic claims, knowing that something is beautiful, knowing that something meets certain kinds of standards of form. We have ethical claims that claims to be knowledge. I know that this course of action is correct. Right? So we have all these different kinds of claim that are out there that claim to be knowledge in different sorts of ways. We have, similarly, different sources of certainty for the claims that we make. And this is not just in academic life, this is in general. We have claims that we make that we support with evidence that comes from empirical observation or experience. We have claims that we make that come from reasoning, the validation for the claim, the warrant for the claim is, is thinking, systematic thinking about things. We have claims that we back up by appeals to various authorities, whether those are political authorities or religious authorities or whatever. We have different ways in which we claim to know things. So a tripartite that I think is quite insightful is this distinction between knowing that, know-how, and knowing from within. There is a communications theorist by the name of John Schotter from whom I borrow that particular articulation of this three. You can find this in a number of different authors. I tend to like the Schotterian version of it. Basically, the distinction here is between knowing that something is or is not the case, instead of knowing the facts, know-how, which is to say knowing how to do different things, how to accomplish a task. And then you have what Schotter calls knowing from within, 
which is the kind of knowledge that allows you to quote unquote go on appropriately in a social context. So I know what the next move in the game is. I know how to respond properly to this person's entreaty. And in everyday life, right, we make all of these different kinds of categories of claim. We utilize all of these different forms of sources of certainty, and we make knowledge claims that participate in each of these varieties of ways of knowing. Now, what science does as a category, right, the very appeal to the category science rules out some of these options. In the first instance, science is often deployed as a notion against aesthetic and ethical knowing, saying that claims about beauty and rightness should not be considered to be appropriate knowledge claims. So that's a built into the deployment of the category science. You can get descriptive and explanatory claims. Those, those will fit. Those should make it over the wall. But aesthetic claims, ethical claims, mm, a little bit, a little bit questionable when one deploys the category science. You often see it utilized in precisely these ways. Similarly, you often see the category science deployed against claims that purport to be rooted in authority rather than in either rational or empirical processes. And there's a good historical reason for this because traditionally the claim to science as I will talk about a little bit later on, is used as a way of breaking the existing institutional monopoly on knowledge claims that was held by the organized church in large parts of Europe, including the United Kingdom, England, back before it was the United Kingdom. This is one of the proximate sources of the particular way in which we use the notion of science nowadays. So there's a political resonance to that, right? Not the arbitrary, quote unquote, authority of the church, but something that is cer certainty found in someplace else. And then certainly when we talk about varieties of knowing, science is most often deployed against the knowing from within notion. But that's not knowing, that's just being part of a group that's not knowledge skills mm, well you know we can make those more scientific if we have the right kind of background to them so we can improve them in some way but really where the category science kind of goes to town is on this knowing that knowing that things are or are not the case and in particular knowing them factually or to use a term that's actually an old English term, but one that I would like to bring back into currency because I think it is a term that refers to a category of claim, a category of knowledge statement that doesn't preclude the question or doesn't prejudge the question of whether the claim is accurate or not, right? We call claims factual and just call a claim factual in English is to suggest not only that it is a candidate for being factually true or false, but that it is in fact factually true. So we need a bigger category. If 
when we're doing this in German, this would actually be easier to do because there are terms in German that you can use to refer to those. But the English word that I want to bring back is the word factic, which is to say factic describes a claim where the claim is a candidate for being adjudicated in terms of its factual truth or falsity. So uh, some philosophers have tried to talk about the facticity uh, of, of a statement as a way again to this. Facticity seems like an ugly word to me. I like factic a lot better. So similar areas we're trying to carve out here. But the idea is that a claim, to say that a claim is a factic claim, to say that a claim is a candidate for being judged true or false on a factual basis, is, I think, to say two things about the claim. It is to say that the claim is a relatively representational claim. So if I am making a claim that I'm hoping is going to be adjudicated with reference to factual information, then I am intending that claim to be some sort of fair or accurate representation of a state of affairs that can be observed or reasoned through. And the second thing that I am suggesting with a factic claim, when I make such a claim, you know, there are five books on my desk right now, for instance, would be a factic claim, even though in this case it's factually false because there's only three books on my desk, but you have no way of knowing that. You just have to take it on uh, the fact that I'm saying so because you can't step through the podcast or the recording or the computer and check how many books are on my desk. So anyway, point being that when I make the claim, I make the claim as a factic claim, I am intending that the claim be judged as or evaluated as a correct representation of a state of affairs, number of books that are sitting on my desk. But I'm also intending that that claim be what you might call non-evaluative, which is to say, I'm not telling you whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not telling you whether it's a positive or a negative thing that I have a number of books on my desk. I'm simply stating how many books there are. And if there's to be any evaluation, that would be separate from the claim itself. So I could say, for instance, my desk is extremely cluttered. And if I were to treat that claim as a factic claim, then I would need a representational standard right by which I could judge whether my desk was in fact cluttered or not cluttered and a clear definition of what clutter meant in everyday life when I use a claim like my desk is cluttered I'm probably making more of an evaluative judgment about it right because clutter is generally understood to be not a good thing so the claim itself could be interpreted in a number of different ways, could be cashed out in a number of different ways. To cash it out factically would be to bracket off that evaluative character and really look at it much more in terms of whether it accurately states, accurately conveys a state of affairs. So that's a factic claim. And science is, as a category, linked to these kinds of factic claims. There are, of course, other kinds of claims and other kinds of knowledges out there. And if we take that same set of two categories that I use to underpin the notion of factic and kind of turn that into a two-by-two, two, which is one of my favorite little tools to think with, then you could have at least three other categories of knowledge that is not factic knowledge. So if you take 
knowledge that purports to be representational or intended is intended to be representational claims that uh, the speaker intends to be representational and you say that those claims however are evaluative claims so I am making a claim that represents a state of affairs but it is also a claim that is making a judgment not just is my desk cluttered, but should we put the bridge here at this point on the ravine or not? Right? This is a, a judgment, but it is a technical judgment because I am utilizing a set of precise definitions and then coming to a conclusion based on how those precise definitions play out and intersect with different kinds of empirical observations. So then you would have technical knowledge, right? Representational, but also evaluative. If you would keep the non-evaluative, but then you would relax the representational and say, actually, these are claims that are being made that are represent they're they're not representing a state of affairs factually they're expressing a perspective but they're doing so in a way that still allows the object to stand there you would end up with aesthetic claims think about artistic representations of say my desk which would aim to convey something about how the objects on my desk appear but are not factual claims <clears throat> because a painting of my desk is not a factual claim about my desk it's not an evaluation of whether what's going on on my desk is good or bad but it certainly expresses a particular point of view about my desk think i i always think in this context of like still life paintings by Cezanne or something where it's not just a factual representation of fruit there is something else going on there but there's also not a judgment being passed on the fruit and the table and so on and if we relax both of those categories we then end up in the lower right hand corner here which is the notion where we find ethical claims the place we find ethical claims which are both expressive of a particular perspective or point of view and also evaluative clearly because ethical claims are evaluating whether something is good or bad or desirable or not desirable we are for the most part during this series going to be concerned with factic claims because that is what science as an evolved category tends to mostly concern itself with the relations between factic claims and particularly true factic claims or facts and the other kinds of categories of knowledge is a thread that we will pick up occasionally and we will come back to at the end to try to think a little bit about this but i want to spend a little bit of time here in the first lecture excavating that factic category a little and thinking through puzzling through how it is that science comes to be mainly associated with that upper left hand box so science as factic construal in other words right because actual concrete claims that people make in the course of scholarship or in the course of everyday life actual claims are indeterminate right sometimes very unclear how to evaluate a particular statement so we use contextual clues to try to figure out how a statement should be evaluated. We are used to reading claims that occur in peer-reviewed academic journals in a particular way. And if that same arrangement of words were to appear in a different context, we might read it in a very different way. So it's not the claim is or is not scientific it's science is a way of construing a way of evaluating a way of cashing out particular claims and evaluating them 
And when we import this category science, when we bring this into our hermeneutic practice of making sense of these claims that people make, we are engaged in trying to evaluate those statements in terms of whether they meet the standards of a detached and impersonal knowing. So a statement like, there are five books on my desk, is a statement that is either impersonally true or impersonally false, if we read it in this kind of factic way, because it doesn't matter who you are, as long as we all use the word five and book and on and desk in similar ways, there's an answer. And we can't continue to have disputes about it if we all agree on the use of these terms. That is the impersonality that I want to get at here, and that's kind of part of this science category, this way of construing statements. The goal to aim for here is always that we have something that is impersonally true, that is detached from any particular perspective. One might refer to this kind of statement, this kind of evaluation process as, as epistemic or is involved in what the Greek philosophers would have called, an ep called episteme. So as a kind of knowing, right? Not episteme as a noun, the way that someone like Michel Foucault uses it. We will touch on that a little later. But episteme as a way of knowing the world. Aspirationally factual, which is to say factic, and true in general, right? That those are the kinds of things that fit the standards that are within this, this science box. Which means, of course, that knowledge, if we want to construe a particular claim through these lenses of science, through factic construal, then we are treating the claim as not a technical claim, so we're not really interested in its results. You know, does this claim work or not work? It's not really an aesthetic claim, which is about questions of, of beauty and form. And it's not really an ethical claim. So we're not really concerned about questions of rightness. When we are engaged in this kind of evaluation, this scientific kind of evaluation, what we are interested in here is factic knowledge that gets at this general kind of truth. So to treat a statement as scientific is to construe it in that way. What this then gives you is what you might call three broad characteristics of the contemporary category science, which is, which are that science is systematic. So you have internal logical connections between premises and conclusions that have to meet a somewhat higher standard, a more stringent standard than say what passes in op-eds and other kinds of journalistic pieces particularly those that express and advocate certain sorts of opinions, and definitely more systematic than the standards that are appropriate for, say, a partisan political speech. That claims that are construed factically are public in the sense that they can be subjected to the evaluation of a group, their very impersonality means that other people can enter into the evaluation process as long as they know how to speak the relevant language. The, the, the wager, to use a term that I will introduce a little bit later, is that a claim that is factic and being evaluated factically is not the personal possession of any one 
individual or any group of individuals. It may be in practice that only certain people actually get to debate whether a particular claim is factually true or not, but the point is that in principle, anybody who learns how to speak that language should be able to evaluate that claim for themselves. That's the publicness of a claim that is construed factically or a scientific claim. And then finally, we have the worldliness of a scientific claim, which is to say that a scientific claim, a claim that we are evaluating according to these kinds of factic standards, has to be a claim about some set of worldly objects. It cannot be a claim that is about things that are outside of the world. Now, different scientists disagree about exactly what is in the world and what kinds of objects there are in the world. There are lots of different theories about different aspects of reality. But what is ruled out by this notion of worldliness are claims about divinities, claims about demons and angels, claims about the utterly transcendental meaning of existence. There are claims like this, but it is extraordinarily difficult, perhaps impossible, to evaluate them factically, because if you do, they generally fall apart. So when we deploy the category science as a hermeneutic orientation, as a way of making sense of particular claims, we're emphasizing the systematicity, publicity, and worldliness in these senses, and those are the guideposts of the way that we're going to go about evaluating a statement. Now, it is an entirely legitimate question to ask, how the heck did we get here? How did we end up with this category that I've been excavating and explicating for the last little while here? And in particular, how did we in the social sciences get to having this category, this notion of science, function as a, an aspirational goal for what it is that our work should look like. How did we get to this place? Well, partially we get to this place because of great misuse of philosophy of science in the social sciences, in which you have a perennial pattern of social scientists reaching into the philosophy of science and pulling things out of it in ways that are kind of bizarre. So sometimes you have people going into philosophy of science and pulling out substantive ideas, actual theoretical propositions about the way that social life operates, and saying that somehow we can learn about social life from studying science. I've never quite understood that particular bridge, but you get that sometimes, and I think it has a lot to do with the aura of legitimacy that surrounds the notion of science. So, oh, if I can reference some science here, then that will actually make my work somehow better, make my work somehow more acceptable. Don't think philosophy of science is a good source for substantive ideas about society. I also don't think philosophy of science is a particularly good place to go for an instruction manual for how to do empirical research. You're not going to learn how to do 
different sorts of techniques by looking at philosophy of science, even philosophy of science about those techniques, because philosophers of science are not really interested in teaching people how to run particular sorts of experiments or set up certain kinds of lab equipment or anything else. That's not really what philosophy of science is for. It's also not for telling a field how to be a real science, even though this is a standard misuse of philosophy of science within the social sciences. Part of that, I think, just has to do with the very naming of the social sciences. Like, science is right there in the name. So, oh, we need to be a science. We need to be a real science. How should we do that? Oh, look, here's these philosophers of science who are talking mostly about physics. Most philosophy of science, historically, is about physics. Nowadays, there is some more about biology, but most of it was about physics. And you could see then why folks in the social sciences might reach over to philosophy of science and say, hey, this is interesting. This is how these sciences that are real sciences work. So maybe if we do some of that stuff over here, we get to be a real science too. Now, this is a very problematic deployment because it presumes that there's such a thing as a single scientific method that you could pick up and import across different kinds of fields. And if you actually read it all closely in the philosophy of science, you realize that that's silly, that that's not the case. It's also kind of fascinating because the use of philosophy of science in this way uses the a very notion of science as a kind of disciplinary debate trump card, right? So we're arguing with each other about ways of doing things. Ah, but I've got science on my side. Boom, I can play that. And then that will legitimate whatever approach it is that I would like to take. So I think we have to be very skeptical of these claims because of the function that they play within internal discussions. And not just at the level of my program versus your program, they play out at the level of here is how you need to do your project because I have science on my side and science says this is how you should do your project. So it's not just me saying it, it's science saying it. And therefore, you've got to do your project this way. That kind of disciplining move is what philosophy of science in the social sciences often gets kind of dragged into. And I think that's really not a particularly helpful use of philosophy of science. The final problem with the misuse of philosophy of science in the social sciences is that there's very opportunistic deployment. Most people who use philosophy of science just grab some philosopher that agrees with them and then throws that into the mix as if that was the sum total of what philosophy of science was saying. Every position that we will talk about here today and over the next couple of lectures still exists in the philosophy of science and philosophers of science have not come to a consensus about what science is, and they are not likely to. So we have to be very careful to not take things completely out of context for, and use them for our own purposes when we are engaged in these discussions. So I think we need to start with a better appreciation of what actually philosophy of science is. And philosophy of science, in terms of its actual task, philosophy of science comes after scientific practice. It takes things 
that are considered to be scientific practice and aims to what you might say sort of elucidate or draw out the logic of scientific inquiry. So how do these processes work? How does science work? Sometimes why does scientific inquiry work? So all of this presumes that the thing that is being studied, the thing that is you start off with is scientific. And then you say, okay, so what is it about this that makes it scientific? How does that function? How does that work properly? Again, why philosophers of science are so attracted to physics is because most people wouldn't have any reason to doubt that physics is a science. And then it's, oh, okay, cool. So what's going on in these parts of physics? And let's see what we can, how we can understand what's happening here. There are, of course, historical reasons also for uh, the reference to physics, and that has a lot to do with the towering figure of Sir Isaac Newton and the generally English, but broader than just in England, sort of obsession with Newton as this particularly paradigmatic scientific figure, which is interesting because when people make those sorts of claims, they're really only reading certain parts of Newton, and they're not reading all of the more theological or theosophical speculation parts of Newton. We tend to put those aside when we are reading Newton and upholding him as this chief exemplar scientist, this massively important physicist. So, but Newton himself is actually embedded in very different kinds of worldviews, and a lot of what Newton wrote wouldn't actually stand up now and be considered as scientific. So there is a partialized reading that goes on here. Anyway, what social science does often is it tries to look for these models and looks for these ways of being scientific, and since the philosophy of science is following along with these already successful sciences and kind of parsing them out, then if you don't understand that it's just trying to elucidate and explain the characteristics of existing sciences, it can start to look like an instruction manual for how to do science. In fact, it can look as if philosophy of science was able to help resolve controversies in actual scientific explanation. Uh, this is actually not true, though. A good philosopher of science will not try to intervene in an ongoing scientific debate, which is interesting because over in the social sciences, everybody who uses philosophy of science is trying to intervene in ongoing controversies about scientific explanation. So it gets kind of muckled up a little bit. So we've got to be careful to make sure that we are affixing philosophy of science to the correct spot in our reflections. And the correct spot here. I think, I am arguing, the correct spot is at the level of what you might call methodology or the status, the epistemic status of claims that we make and how we should go about evaluating them. And it turns out that since there's a lot of different approaches in the philosophy of science, that there is no one answer to this question, but there are a series of structured answers to this question. And that use of philosophy of science produces a very different approach to what it is that we ought to be doing here in the social sciences. So to be a little more systematic about this, why should we care about philosophy of science anyway? Well, we should care about this because these disciplinary processes in the social sciences rely often very explicitly on claims about the scientific status of one or another approach.
So that fact that this is the term that gets tossed around means that philosophy of science is a way of educating ourselves about the different nuances that this term science and the claims about scientific status that these teasing out sort of what these claims mean what they do whether they work what their implications are right so because we toss this stuff around all the time it's useful to look at it in its philosophical context in fact at the heart of every other every kind of nonpartisan role that we want scientific knowledge to play particularly policy relevance quote-unquote like what makes the claim that a group of scholars come up with compelling or binding in any sense on political elites and power holders? Certainly it's not the massive amounts of political influence that the scientific community possesses because no. So there is a different kind of claim that's made. It's this claim should be followed because of its epistemic status, because of its scientific validity. Even if we don't use the word science, the impersonal, detached knowing that comes along with the term science is connected to and integral to the claims that we make that are supposed to then advise various practical actors. So whether we use the term or not, we sort of can't get away from it. The very differentiation between knowledge and opinion is the kind of thing that's wrapped up with this question of the category of science. So thinking about philosophy of science can sharpen our ways of apprehending that distinction. Because it's not just us that make these kinds of differentiations, it's also the audiences that we talk to. They have understandings, perhaps implicit ones, about what counts as a valid claim. And we need to understand what those different categories of validity are so that we can respond to them appropriately. The final thing I think that's important, and I mentioned this a moment ago, but I'll reiterate it here. The final reason that's important for us to take philosophy of science seriously in the practicing social sciences is because philosophers of science haven't actually reached a consensus about these things there is still live ongoing debate about all of these questions. And because of that, we have to be very skeptical of any use of a blanket notion of science to discipline ways of knowing within our field, within the social sciences in general. So that lack of philosophical consensus leads to a very different way of proceeding than would be the case if there were a single consensus about what science is. If there were such a consensus, we would just implement it. There isn't. So we are in a much more ambiguous place. What can we do about that much more ambiguous place? We can have some clarity about the boundaries of the ambiguity and about the ways that that ambiguity unfolds. And that is what I think the best use of uh, thinking about philosophy of science is for those of us in the social sciences. Now, I want to shift gears just slightly. And I want to talk for the remainder of this time about the category science and about the history, the development of this category. How did we get to a point 
where the standard deployment of the notion of science is so closely linked to these notions of factic construal. Well, if we look into philosophy of science, what we find is that contemporary philosophy of science is generally reacting to two key articulations. And parenthetically, when I say contemporary philosophy of science, what I mean is contemporary philosophy of science in the Anglo-American and continental European tradition slash worldview. There are certainly ample amounts of reflections on conditions of knowledge that come out of other sorts of traditions. And the only reason I am not talking about those here is because I am not as knowledgeable about those traditions as I am about this one. And this tradition is the one that has become, shall we say, hegemonic in a lot of these discussions globally, for reasons having to do with empire and so on. So I'm talking here primarily about the tradition and sets of categories that we scholars in the U.S. and Europe have inherited, or people who are in the U.S. and European kind of tradition have inherited. And philosophy of science as a specific endeavor kind of emerged out of that tradition and keeps arguing with it and keeps debating within it. So that's what I am referring to here. There are indeed alternative ways of knowing and alternative ways of thinking about this category, and they come out of very different kinds of historical cultural traditions, and some of them may even turn out to be more productive avenues than this one. But for better and for worse, <laughs> this is the road that we have, and so I'm going to try to keep us examining where that road comes from and where that road goes. Maybe at the end of the day, the decision is, okay, we need a different road. But for now, we're just going to deal with the situation that we have inherited, the one we find ourselves within. In the situation that we find ourselves, we need to talk about Rene Descartes, and we need to talk about Descartes' particular articulation of the problem of knowledge and what Richard Bernstein called the Cartesian anxiety that that position led to and that we inherit as scientific knowers. And we need to talk a little bit about the Vienna Circle, and that is a group of philosophers in Vienna, that's why it's called the Vienna Circle, uh, around the early part of the 20th century in the major reason we need to talk about the Vienna Circle in particular is because the members of the Vienna Circle, who then had to go into exile in the 1930s because of various things happening in that part of the world, and many of them found their way into different places in the United States and the United Kingdom, and they, they and their students founded the enterprise called philosophy of science. So you, there is a direct connection between members of the Vienna Circle, between especially folks like Rudolf Carnap, and the contemporary field of philosophy of science. So 
that turns out to be a tremendously important part of the story, as we will see. Now, as I said, both of these things are subsets of the European Enlightenment as a philosophical, cultural, political project, a general project of transformation of social and, uh, and intellectual relations. It's kind of where these articulations of knowledge come from. And the central problem that they continue to wrestle with, and therefore the central problem that we in many ways inherit, is this problem of demarcating science. What are the boundaries of science? What kinds of things lie outside the borders of science and what kinds of things lie within them? So that demarcation problem is going to keep cropping up as we work through this. So, Rene Descartes, I always want to start singing the Monty Python uh, philosopher's drinking song at this point, but I'm not going to do that. Google it if you don't know the Monty Python philosopher's drinking song. It's hysterical. Anyway, this is Rene Descartes. And Descartes, as you probably have learned at some point, probably read some Descartes at some point in the past. Descartes was very concerned about the question of the truth of things, and particularly the truth of religion, and set up a project for himself of trying to validate the truths of revealed scriptural Christian religion without reference to scriptures. His point is, as he says in the introduction to Discourse on Method, the point is to create a set of claims that would be appealing and would be persuasive to people who had not had the benefit of the revelation of the Holy Scriptures. There's a lot of debate in Descartes scholarship whether he was actually just saying that to get around the various religious censors at the time who had to approve of the publication of his books, neither here nor there. Point is that what Descartes is trying to articulate is a basis for truth claims that is not grounded in the authority of scripture. And Descartes is therefore looking for something other than God as the root of absolute certainty. So within a religious discourse, right, absolute certainty is God and God's revelation or the revelation of whatever deity or divine being right, reveals something and that is where your certainty is grounded. But if you don't use that, what else could be the source of absolute certainty? And Descartes' approach to this is through this method of radical doubt, to doubt every proposition that could be doubted. And then after having doubted all the propositions that could be doubted, then Descartes thought you would arrive finally at something that was literally impossible to doubt, and that would be the foundation of absolute certainty. So he starts off by doubting the evidence of his senses, because the senses can be mistaken about things and he starts to doubt the logical conclusions of his own mind because he could be being deluded about how many sides a triangle has or things like this and after all of this taking apart all the things that are doubtful he then reaches the thing that he suggests cannot be doubted and the thing that cannot be doubted for Descartes is his own existence 
because if I doubt my own existence, I am still the one doubting my own existence and therefore I still exist. Cogito ergo sum in the famous phrase that he uses. The problem is once Descartes reaches this notion that he exists and that is the only thing he can't possibly doubt, that that is the source of absolute certainty, then that just leaves him as a existing subject but without any ability to do anything in the world or trust any input from the world because that isn't anywhere near as certain. So Descartes' way of getting himself out of this is a very complicated ontological proof of the existence of God in which Descartes reasons that because he has an idea of a perfect being and he's not himself a perfect being, then there must actually be a perfect being that put the idea of perfect being there. And so therefore we can tell that God actually exists because we have this idea of perfection, which couldn't have come from me, an imperfect being. It must come from someplace else. There's more actual reality in the idea of God than there is in me. It gets really confusing. Point being that Descartes requires God because then once he can establish the existence of God, then he can say God being all powerful would not allow my senses to deceive me, would not allow an evil demon to come in and confuse the rational thoughts of my mind. So, oh, okay, all that stuff can be certain now too. So in other words, God is required to sort of jump the gap from the existence of the knowing individual to knowledge of anything else. This is a solution that only really works as long as your audience buys the ontological proof of God, or as long as you believe in God, and particularly the kind of God and the attributes of God that Descartes is talking about. As that begins to decline or be threatened or shaken, then Descartes' proof starts to fall apart, except the part that stays around is the existence of the individual knower as the thing that you are certain of. So we have these anxious Cartesian individuals. I know I exist, but I don't really know with certainty anything else. So this is the condition that Richard Bernstein refers to as Cartesian anxiety. So it creates this urgency of needing a basis on which to place my knowledge of anything other than my own existence. So two major kinds of solutions to this particular problem. One is the empiricist tradition associated uh, in, among others with this gentleman here, who is John Locke. And the empiricist answer to Descartes, to Cartesian anxiety, was to say actually knowledge in general is grounded in sense experience and that is the original of where knowledge comes from. And so because we have sense experience, it doesn't make any sense to doubt sense experience because that's the basis of everything. And so that is the solid place to put knowledge. So Locke's famous articulation of this notion in his essay, Continuing Human Understanding, is that human beings are born without any innate ideas, that every complex idea that human beings have is a set of logical operations that are conducted on sense impressions in one way or another. We've combined different kinds of notions to create these complex ideas. None of them, Locke says, start off inside of us. We start out as a blank slate and then we observe things and we experience things and that is where knowledge comes from. 
So the idea, if you are a Lockean empiricist, is that you reduce complex notions down to basic sense perceptions, and that's how you can explain complex ideas like justice. You can say, well, actually, justice is not some abstract ethereal notion, but it is a conclusion that is derived from observations about fairness and about things balancing. And that's really all that's going on in this stuff. Which is why also for Locke, revelation and miracles become tremendously important because those are observable proofs of religion. And so you need to be able to have those. And if you don't have them directly, then you have the records of them that are preserved in scripture. And that's why we know there's a God, etc., etc. So that's kind of the empiricist program. Now, the problem with the empiricist program and a later empiricist, David Hume, is sort of the person most associated with pointing out these problems. So there is a difficulty if everything is reducible to observations because there are some very important unobservable notions that we would like to hold on to, but they're really difficult to justify in an empiricist framework. One of them is the self and the very existence of the self. As Hume points out, every time I try to look at myself, I don't see myself. I get an impression of where my body was a moment ago or what I was thinking, but I never see myself. This is, of course, hugely problematic for the empiricists because it means that they might not actually exist, that the idea of the self might actually just be some kind of construct that isn't actually grounded in observation. And this is also hugely problematic because if the self doesn't exist, the self can't be observed, the self isn't in some sense empirically real, that might mean that the soul is also not empirically real, and that might mean that there isn't heaven or hell, and that would cause a whole series of religious systems to fall apart. So that becomes kind of problematic. The other thing that is rather difficult to observe, Hume points out, is causation. You can see things following from each other, you can see successions, but can you really see causing? No, there are sort of secret, unobservable powers, and you don't know what those are, but you can see that things go together. So you can see that every morning the sun comes up, but does that really give you confidence that the sun's going to come up tomorrow? Now, Hume's answer to all of this was to say that there are certain kinds of notions that we can rationally come to, that we can use to basically correct and order some of our sense impressions. So there is a way that we can say that certain kinds of observations actually point in the direction of showing us that there is some sort of causal connection. It is a more tentative kind of knowledge, but it is the use of reason to curate one's sense impressions that would lead us to then the conclusion that there are actually selves and there is such a thing as causality. So it's a kind of blend of the pure empiricist tradition with the other major tradition of trying to uh, resolve the problem of Cartesian anxiety, which is the tradition of rationalism, and this comes to a head with this gentleman here, Immanuel Kant. And the Kantian version of how you deal with Cartesian anxiety is that you ground knowledge in the basic operations of the rational mind. And that means that instead of saying the thing that is absolutely certain are empirical observations, the thing that is absolutely certain are the categories with which reason necessarily 
operates. They are, in Kant's language, a priori. They come before experience. We, as knowing rational subjects, bring these categories into our apperception of things. So space, time, causation, these are things that exist in the operations of reason itself. So it's not as if these things are in the world, so of course we don't observe them. They are instead the conditions of our observation of anything. So I don't see space, I see objects in space, but that's because I brought the category space into my perception of the object in the first place. These are, for Kant, necessary presuppositions of rational thinking per se. Any rational creature would need, Kant says, to use these categories, and therefore they are an absolutely certain basis on which to found our knowledge. So the rationalist approach to things tends to critique the empiricist for be, empiricist approach for being very relativist, for being very confined to particular sets of observations. Different people might look at different things and come to different conclusions about justice, say, because they had different experiences. And the rationalist is like, no, no, horror, that's terrible. Kant's famous articulation of this was that Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers. And then that is what impelled Kant to start thinking about these broad conditions of reason. So playing off of Hume. The problem with the Kantian solution, though, is it depends on an agreement with the analysis of reason. It depends on agreeing that the Kantian categories are, in fact, categories that are necessary presuppositions of all rational thought. And that turns out to be a very difficult thing to sustain. The debates after Kant immediately fall to questions of whether we need all of these categories. How do we define these categories? Can we simplify some of them? There's all these different neo-Kantian schools that are going off in different directions. This is just happening within neo-Kantians. There's other people in the world who don't agree with Kant's analysis of reason and don't actually approach it in this way. And then later critics started to point out that Kant's notion of the transcendental presupposition categories for reason looks an awful lot like a formalization of privileged white males sitting at the top of an imperial hierarchy and doesn't generalize to the rest of humanity, particularly the parts of humanity that were kept lower in the hierarchy by these very same colonial practices and institutions. So that undoes the certainty of these kinds of rationalist strategies a little bit. But what's also very important about Kant is that Kant's rationalism took the sciences, and particularly the physical sciences, as an empirical point of departure, and said that you learn these basic categories by thinking about what empirical science does in terms of reasoning backwards to the categories with which it operates. So even though Kant is understood as kind of the arch-rationalist, there is a real engagement with empirical science and its findings as part of the Kantian system. So if you were to make this a little bit more schematic, right? So factic knowledge is the general category that these people are trying to elucidate. And as I've said, it kind of subdivides into these two different strategies for grounding factic knowledge. Yay, we have the rationalist branch and we have the empiricist branch. 
Descartes and way out there on the rationalist side, I can reason my way to absolute certainty. We have Locke way out here on the empiricist side. No, certainty comes from observation, and that's what we need to ground everything in. You have someone like Hume, who is an empiricist, who then brings in certain notions of rationalism to say, well, reason can correct perception in various ways and so we can achieve certain knowledge that way or as certain as we can get and Kant is a rationalist is that well you don't just lock yourself in a tower and doubt everything that can be doubted you have to actually think about and reason about these marvelous things that are going on in the physical sciences and that's how you figure out that things like space and time are necessary presuppositions of thought Somewhere between Kant and Hume in that debate and discussion there, that's the category, right? That's the category science. So what is the proper balance of rationalist and empiricist practice is an ongoing debate within this particular category. There are virtually no people floating around anymore who are pure form empiricists or pure form rationalists. It is this sort of second order debate that I've circled here in blue that is the one that is continuing within the tradition of thinking about science. Now that tradition of thinking about science also has an important kind of institutional manifestation. And the gentleman I've put up here, William Wewell, is one of the people who is tremendously important to the articulation of science as not just an intellectual notion, but as a practical, organized notion. Wewell, after all, was the person who invented the term scientist, looking out at a variety of specialist, what were emerging as fields or disciplines, and saying, well, there's something that actually unifies all of these things. So there is a general logic that kind of underpins this. And that differs across in, in detail ways across different specializations. So botanists and meteorologists don't work in exactly the same way, but they all belong in this general category of something called science. So Wewell is English and is working within a life world or an intellectual world that's very dominated by empiricist notions, particularly Lockean notions. But he is kind of a relative rationalist in that setting. He's not Kant, but there are resonances to his thinking that are kind of Kantian, which is sort of an interesting hybrid blend. Wewell is one of the most important defenders of science as a separate sphere of activity and a person who is important for articulating the public justification for there being such a thing as science and for it being a separate and valuable field of endeavor and in particular for being a separate and valuable sphere of activity in which discoveries happened where the tradition of knowledge that I mean, he was the master of Trinity College in Cambridge and the tradition of knowledge in sort of Oxford and Cambridge at the time was really knowledge was something that you conserved and built up slowly and transmitted the heritage, right? That that's what you did. The idea that knowledge was about making claims and going out and expanding the realm, like doing active research was kind of countercultural at the time. And so you had these people who were outside of the university setting that were engaged in making all of these discoveries. And Wewell is one of these important folks who says, no, that is what science is. Science is these sets of endeavors 
right? That's the way in which we should be going about these things. So it's an important linchpin with legitimating this activity of science. And it is important that he is doing this in the United Kingdom, doing this in Britain, doing this at a time when the British Empire is globe spanning. And so that helps to fuel the notion that science was about these general decontextualized knowledges. So botanists that would work on properties of plants were enabled to do lots of cross-regional comparisons by the fact that given the British Empire, you had people floating around in all these different parts of the world who could collect stuff and bring them all back to London and study them. So the global reach of the British Empire helps to support the notion of knowledge as general and decontextualized, pulled out of its local context to achieve some level of generality. So that practice is sort of the practice that we will, and others, but him in particular, theorizes as science. Right, so the category that we have grows out of that kind of imperial soil as well, and that is important to keep in mind. Now I mentioned that the other reaction here, the other articulation here is the Vienna Circle, and this is one member of the Vienna Circle. This is Rudolf Carnap. And the Vienna Circle, as I said, was a group of intellectuals, group of philosophers, neo-Kantians in many ways, who in the early part of the 20th century came up with a particular approach to thinking about how to resolve these science questions. And their approach, the Vienna Circle approach to these things, the Vienna Circle, by the way, is the origin in the social sciences of the term positivism. Yes, there was Auguste Comte with his positive philosophy, but if you actually go back and read Comte, then like what Comte is talking about is very, very different from the way people throw around the term positivism in the social sciences. It tends to be much more this Vienna Circle usage of positivism because what the Vienna Circle argued is that you could resolve some of these problems of knowledge by, as a first move, arguing that the only source of valid knowledge is empirical science, but then as a second move, what the heck is philosophy then, if the only source of valid knowledge is empirical science? Well, philosophy and logic are tools that we can use to separate sensical from nonsensical statements, and the only sensible ones are the ones that can be addressed by empirical science. Everything else, to use their terminology, is metaphysics. And metaphysics is nonsense. It's not false. Right? For a claim to be false, it would have to first be a claim that could be adjudicated by empirical scientific procedures, say the Vienna Circle philosophers. So a claim about God loving the world is not a claim that can be adjudicated by empirical science. So it's not that it's false, it just it's nonsense. And the point of philosophy was to help us differentiate sense from nonsense cleaning up the sorts of things that were floating around as knowledge claims and getting rid of them by saying these aren't actually candidates for empirical true or empirical false in the first place so why are we working with them like get rid of this stuff you could in that sense bound science say the vienna circle philosophers by tossing out the claims that couldn't actually be verified by empirical science and you still see echoes of this bounding strategy 
in lots of debates now and discussions now about science and about the category science. Get rid of claims that don't belong there and then you will have something that is more defensible. Now, the Vienna Circle folks themselves were very clear that this cleanup process of getting rid of regressive metaphysics would actually usher in the possibility of a set of social and political reforms that would put things on a much more defensible, rational basis. And Carnap, in particular, was uh, connected to the Bauhaus design movement and would frequently go to Berlin to lecture in some of the events that the Bauhaus designers would put together. So the idea of stripping out the extraneous nonsense from human life and setting things on a more sound, rational basis, which for the Vienna Circle generally also meant some form of social democracy or socialist way of governing. This aspect of the Vienna Circle gets downplayed a bit when they go into exile, and in particularly with those that end up in the United States, because they end up in the United States right around the time of the Cold War, and socialism is not something that you can proclaim very loudly as an immigrant coming into the United States without there being massive amounts of popular backlash about how un-American you are. So a large downplaying of that more radical tendency sort of in, infiltrated the practice of philosophy of science. And so what you get with Carnap and some of his students and uh, with some of Hempel's students, for instance, you end up with people who are much more focused on these technical aspects of like how do you use language and that that's really the, the sum total. Yes, Vienna Circle did a lot of that in terms of technical analysis of language, but it had this different, broader reformist revolutionary agenda to it. And that agenda kind of disappears in exile. So partially why we end up with the category science being this detached let's just represent the world the way that it is, is because of these sets of political forces that downplayed the revolutionary character of what it would mean to eliminate nonsense from our store of knowledge. So the Vienna Circle project doesn't actually succeed partially because of the exile, partially because of the downplaying of different things, partially because of some internal issues involving the, the ways that the Vienna Circle philosophers thought they could resolve certain problems of, of decidability in language. And those problems turned out not to be as easily resolvable, especially once you had uh, people like the mathematician Kurt Gödel demonstrating that there were incompletenesses and inconsistencies in formal systems that could not be resolved and could not be resolved in a way that would allow you to come to a definitive answer about the truth and falsity of any individual statement. So there are reasons why the Vienna Project doesn't work, but the dream of the Vienna Project, the dream of a secure boundary for science that would allow grounding knowledge in something other than metaphysics, something other than assumptions, something other than practices, that dream, that kind of positivist dream, continues. It's one of the things that the category inherits. 
And all of the different approaches within the philosophy of science now kind of grapple with this legacy, this Cartesian legacy, this Kantian legacy, this Viennese or Vienna circle legacy. But what we have is a much more fragmented view now. And this is the ordering that I like of different approaches to these things. And it's the stuff that I go into and excavate more in the Conduct of Inquiry book and is also the way that the remaining two days of this are, are structured. You have these different wagers, right? these different commitments that we make. And these commitments sort of open up the world in different kinds of ways. So there is a commitment reading across the, the axis on the top, there is a commitment, a wager about whether knowledge is bounded by experience or whether knowledge can go beyond experience and pick up like the deeper wellsprings of, of experience. And that's the distinction between phenomenalism and transfactualism. A phenomenalist approach would be to say, no, 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 you can only know empirical things. You can only know stuff you can perceive. And then transfactual would say, ah, no, you can actually know things that are unobservable. You can know things that are undetectable, but are still real, right? They're still there uh, in some sense. It's just that you can't perceive them directly. And in the social sciences, where this comes out is discussions about social structure and uh, also about causal powers and causal mechanisms, as we will see tomorrow. The other axis, the one that's going sort of up and down the, the vertical, is the distinction between mind-world dualism and mind-world monism. Now, mind-world dualism is the idea that the mind and the world are separate and knowledge crosses the gap somehow between the mind and the world to draw a more or less accurate picture of what the world actually looks like. And monism is the idea that mind and world are kind of co-constituted, so there's really no gap to cross, and knowledge comes not as a representational copy of the world from outside, but knowledge comes from the practical involvement that we have in the world itself. And the way that the remaining two lectures are organized, tomorrow we're going to talk about dualism, and then the third lecture is going to talk about monism. Within the dualist camp, you have both neo-positivists, who extend certain legacies of the positivist, logical positivist movement from Vienna, particularly through the uh, offices and efforts of a junior associate of the Vienna Circle, uh, one Karl Popper, who we will talk a little bit about. And that gives us this contemporary things, neo-positivism, hypothesis testing, case comparison kind of apparatus. You also, however, in the dualist approach have sort of a realist way of thinking about these things not realism in the international relations sense but realism philosophically which is to say that there are things in the world that cannot be directly perceived but are still real and can be accessed through things like laboratory work on the monist side we have a division between the analyticists who say that our intellectual constructs are tools for instrumentally knowing things about the world, but the world and things we can know about are still actually bounded by questions of perception and experience, versus those that would say, sort of in the fourth box, that our 
practical involvement in the world helps to reveal certain deeper truths about the way the world is organized and structured and we see that through the marks that it leaves on our own experiences and we kind of abductively infer from that to the broader structures in which we are all implicated and we have to therefore be reflexive and that is the foundation of our valid knowledge so those are the four categories and that is where we are going. What we've done today is establish that these four are reactions to that tradition that we inherit from Descartes, from the Vienna Circle, from Kant. That that's the context within which these debates ensue. I'm going to stop there for now.